Welcome to OVS Orbit, the podcast for Open vSwitch users and developers. This is episode number 49. I recorded this episode in early November in Sydney, Australia at the OpenStack Summit. I'm talking to Andrew Ruthven, a data center manager at Catalyst IT, which is a New Zealand-based IT services provider. Our topic is the Open Compute Project and specifically its networking components. On to the interview. Welcome, everybody. Uh, this week, I'm in Sydney, Australia for OpenStack uh, uh, Sydney. And uh, yesterday, I gave my talk uh, at the conference, and then I stuck around in the same room for the next talk. And I, I really wished uh, afterward that I'd uh, asked him whether I could record his talk, too, uh, because uh, some of it is, is quite relevant. So uh, today, I'm talking to uh, Andrew Ruthven, uh, who also goes by Puck, uh, who's a data center manager at uh, Catalyst Cloud, uh, which is a New Zealand-based cloud. Um, so uh, but before we really jump into things, uh, do you want to say anything more about, about yourself or about Catalyst? Sure thing. So uh, Catalyst IT is the well, one of the organizations I work with. Uh, we are the largest open source specialist company in Australasia. We also have a public cloud, which is called the Catalyst Cloud. And with that, we're a New Zealand's only true cloud operator, according to the, the NIST standards. We're, there, you know, there are other people that will provide infrastructure as a service, but it's not, cloud, not real cloud-based. Uh, all right. Uh, so uh, how, how did you uh, uh, get into this business, or how did, how did Catalyst, I, I guess? Uh? So Catalyst ended up getting into the cloud hosting business because... Basically, we saw that the uh, the approach that we've been doing uh, virtual service for our customers to provide the applications that we'd written wasn't really going to scale anymore. You know, we were doing KVM. You know, it was all treating being treating these servers as pets, keep looking after them, and we could see that really going towards some of these uh, cloud architectures was the way to go. So we decided to implement our own OpenStack-based cloud after a whole heap of R and D at the time, and. So we started doing this, and then we had our customers and other organizations within New Zealand start saying, hey, you're doing this cloud thing. Can we use some of that? So, you know, after a you know, very short period of uh, consideration, we decided, actually, yeah, this, this makes sense. So we decided that we'll do a, priv- uh, a public cloud within New Zealand. Uh, and so I got involved with it because I did a bunch of Skunkworks projects within Catalyst, and I just kind of fell into working on this project. And then... I end up being heavily involved in the fit out of a new data center and I continue to operate that on a day-to-day basis and I suddenly I found I was the data center manager. I see. So it, it, it sounds like it really started out as a, a private cloud and then sort of uh, uh, progressed into a, a public cloud. Pretty much. Although we launched directly to being a public cloud. It was during the R&D phases that we we had these conversations and changed how we're going to be, you know, the initial offering suddenly became a public cloud. So uh, yesterday, uh, your talk was about uh, the, the Open Compute Project. Uh, so uh, I'm, I'm sure that uh, most of the people listening have heard of it, but they probably don't know the details. So do you want to introduce us to the Open Compute Project as a, as a way to, to get going? Sure thing. So there's been a, a really interesting thing where traditionally uh, the hardware platforms that we've been dealing with have all been proprietary from the big vendors. And there's you're kind of tied to what they have. Back in uh, 
when Facebook decided to build a new data centre, which they built in 2011 in Oregon, they decided to step back and rethink computing, rethink the data centre and how things were put together and what's, what was involved. So they redesigned the way that you build a data centre from effectively from the ground up. So instead of doing a raised floor, they just did a concrete floor, concrete slab, and put the rack directly on that. They decided to step back and redesign the servers. And instead of buying a server from one of the traditional vendors, like, you know, such as IBM or HP or anyone else, they actually decided to go directly to the manufacturers and design their own servers and had them make the servers to their specification. And one of the reasons for doing this was a lot of the servers that we're dealing with traditionally have a lot of components that we don't actually need in a server when you're doing, especially if you're doing cloud computing or large-scale computing like Facebook does. So they decided to cut out things like SVGA ports and, in fact, entire video cards gone. They didn't put any PS2 ports in. They cut down the number of USB things. And they decided, hey, let's also think about how are we doing power supplies. Let's centralise the power supply shelf and a whole heap of things like this. So instead of running 110 volt, because this, is, this was for America, to each server, instead they ran 12 volts to each server by using a 12 volt bus at the back of the rack. And the really great thing is I decided, why should we keep this to ourselves? Let's, let's get the benefits of uh, bulk discounts effectively and let other people use these designs as well. That way they get to uh, get lower cost servers other people get the benefit, and they get the benefit from the feedback and improvements from other parties. So along with uh, Rackspace and Intel, Facebook released their designs as open source. They created a foundation, it's called the Open Compute Foundation, and now Open Compute Foundation look after the Open Compute project. And from those initial three uh, companies, now there's over 195 organizations or members, and there's over 170 products within the OCP family. Well, uh, that seems like uh, some, some pretty impressive progress from, uh, from just one company a- at the beginning. So uh, my guess is that the, uh, the individual savings on a server from, uh, for example, leaving out a PSD, PS2 port is not that great. Um, but uh, what you were talking about in your talk was how it drastically simplifies management in other ways. Do you want to say a little bit about that? Yeah, totally. So, uh, of course, another aspect that they looked at was with a traditional servers, you know, there's potentially quite a lot of overhead. Uh, doing work on them can be quite difficult because traditionally you, you end up with a lot of screws that you need to be able to undo to get things out of them. You actually need to take them apart to replace parts that have failed. So they decided as part of this, let's let's go down the path, let's do vanity-free computing, let's, let's not put on the, the silly little face panels in front of them, let's make the servers a little bit taller so you can put in uh, bigger fans to improve the airflow through them. Uh, let's do our tools. So for a design to be accepted into the OCP uh, foundation, it actually has to be a toolless server. You have to be able to work on it with no, with no tools. And they put in these touch points on them. You know, they make them green because it's obvious what they are. And there's, so there's uh, thumb screws. There's things you can pull out. Uh, so one of the things that I wanted to look at was let's reduce the maintenance costs. Let's make it easy to work on these machines. Uh, there, there's even little, little tiny things that you might not necessarily think about, but they deliberately made it on these servers so you can replace the BIOS battery without actually taking the machine apart. There's a little hole on the side of the chassis that you just pop, pop out the, um, the, the battery, put a new one in. These are things that people don't normally stop and think about, but yet they did, and they're there. Uh, 
And another aspect is when you think about in a modern data centre, we often have a cold aisle and hot aisle containment going on. So we, we make sure that airflow goes the right way, we don't recirculate hot air. It's not very nice to work in the hot aisle. Traditional servers, you need to go into the hot aisle, plug cables in, take them out. Uh, to be able to rack a server, you've got to spend quite a bit of time in the hot aisle. With OCP, all the ports are on the front of the server. So you only ever operate in the cold aisle, which traditionally is, you know, can be quite a comfortable area to work in, uh, especially with uh, a lot of hardware. You don't need to have them as cold as we used to, you know, people used to do. So you find that you don't spend anywhere near as much time in the, the hot aisle. So from that point of view, they're, they're just nicer to work on and nicer to work with. So uh, it, it sounds like there's a, a lot of important benefits once you're past the, the basic teething troubles. Uh, on the other hand, it sounded like uh, you, you had some real challenges uh, trying to get all of this uh, set up in Australia and, and New Zealand. Uh, do you, do you want to say anything about that? Certainly. So uh, no, I started looking at uh, OCP back in about 2012 was when I started to, to really get interested in the project and what was going on. In 2013, I started to really try and chase OCP and see if we could do something for Catalyst and the, the problem I ran into is initially is that the integrators, the people who have been doing OCP deployments, they're used to dealing with 100 plus rack deployments at a time you know, they build them all up in, in a factory I've seen photos of, of what it looks like when they're building these, these servers and, and these racks and ideally what they want to do is they want to take a rack fully populate it, cable it all up, install the operating system install the applications that's required and then they ship them off to the data center where it's going to get, be deployed so all they have to do is roll them into, onto the data floor plug in the power plug in the network turn on the rack job done in the Australian New Zealand market we're a lot smaller that's not how things work in this market we you know we're dealing with a couple of racks at a time maybe putting in servers on a uh, organic growth kind of model so when I was first trying to contact these uh, integrators they just went returning my emails <laughs> Uh, it that must just, have been really frustrating. It was incredibly frustrating. Uh, but then I went to the OpenStack Summit in Hong Kong. And I was able to actually sit down and with one of the uh, integrators and actually spend some time chatting with them. And from that point forward, I was actually able to start having uh, a much better conversation with these guys. I was able to reach out to some of the other parties that were around. And it became easier there was still the issue about how do we set up the supply chain in New Zealand because these companies weren't, hadn't done anything in this market. They didn't know what it was like or how to do the customs or anything like that. So fortunately, I was able to turn to my existing integrator, Silicon Systems, and they, they were able to take care of that aspect for me. And then in 2016, I finally managed to actually order a rack, get it delivered, get it installed, which is a, a little bit of a, a, a drama because it was supposed to be 600 mil wide or 605 mil wide. But, you know, we, we were able to shuffle some racks around and, and fit, it, fit in the slot that I'd reserved for it and, yeah, get it turned on. But, you know, it's as it turns out, it's not just getting that supply chain set up. You need to make sure you've got the support chain in place as well and the RMA processes because we did actually have a fault with the power shelf. And we had to go through the RMA process, which was a somewhat painful process because it hadn't been set up. Uh. Uh, yeah, so you mentioned Hong Kong. My guess is that that was exactly the right place to uh, to go because uh, wouldn't a lot of this stuff be coming from Shenzhen? 
Absolutely. Yeah, Shenzhen is one of the areas that, they, that this gear is coming from. Uh, it's also coming from other parts of China and Taiwan as well. But that's pretty much where the manufacturing is. Got it. So uh, we, we've talked a lot about uh, Open Compute Project in general and uh, um, how, uh, how you got some of the hardware set up uh, in your data centers here. Um, but what really uh, got, piqued my interest during your talk was when you started talking about networking as part of the Open Compute Project. So uh, do you want to say something about uh, uh, how uh, Open Compute Project relates to networking and the network comp- components of it? Sure thing. So the Open Compute Project isn't just around servers. Uh, it's around the entire data center infrastructure. Uh, so this includes how you, you know, manage the servers, how you do interoperability between equipment, and how you do the networking. So open networking is a huge part of this aspect. And in fact, it can be a much easier way for people to actually get involved in the project and start using these, these technologies. So what they've done is basically said, right, let's get white box commodity switches. They actually just have pretty much Intel CPUs in them. They look like a server when you're on them. You can actually SSH into them. You can use Puppet. You can use Chef. You can use Ansible. You can use whatever you want to use to actually manage them because they're just fancy servers. They're just servers with a whole heap of Ethernet ports on the front of them or SFP Plus or whatever you want to to put into them. So there's a bunch of providers that you can buy these white boxes from, uh, Penguin Computing, Edgecore, Mellanox. There's just a handful of people that make these. There are other ones. And in fact what you find is that some of the uh, big hybrid providers are actually rebadging some of these switches as their own, but you're actually using an, a white box switch. It might be running uh, their particular operating system on it, but you could actually replace the operating system and, and put another one on. The way that you do that is use the use ONU, which is the Open Network Installer Environment, which is basically a, uh, a slightly modified version of Pixie Boot. So what you can do is you can put, you, you, you rack your switch, you turn it on, it goes off those DHCP, finds out where the operating system is, downloads and stores it, and then it can do an automatic deployment for the configuration as well. So what you actually find is that you can do uh, turnkey network switch repla- uh, deployments and replacements, which is really, really easy. And the other great thing about, about this is that it's no longer just switches. You can now get open networking access points. So you could actually have your entire network infrastructure in your facility open, uh, where you can uh, deploy what configuration you want. And not only can you put on these uh, open source, because some of these are open source uh, switching architectures or open networking switches, but you can also use things like OpenFlow to manage them and actually turn these switches into glorified routers by putting the routing logic somewhere else in your network and doing software-defined networking across your entire architecture. So there's some really cool stuff going on there, and you know things like Fawcett, an awesome option, uh, Open vSwitch, all this kind of stuff. Is we're starting to see all of these things come together in just amazing, and fantastic ways. So I've uh, I've talked to people uh, who are on sort of the development side of these, uh, but it's exciting for me to talk to someone who uh, actually is is more on the user end. Have you started to integrate any of this uh, um, open networking uh, into your own data centers? Yes and no. Uh, so we've deployed, uh, we're using currently deploying Cumulus Linux as the operating system on our switches. Having said that, we're not actually making use of OpenFlow at this stage, to doing centralized management of, of it. It's one of those things that would you know, be very keen to look at doing, but you know, it's a matter of time. We just haven't had the time to do that. We've, we've been focusing on our cloud platform and getting that going, and we decided that we'll just kind of keep the 
our needs for the switching layer is actually quite simplistic. So we've decided to keep keep those systems separate. Haven't said that. It's an, it is an interest of me. I, my background is network engineering, so I'll be quite keen to have a chance to have a player with this at some point in time. But, yeah, I just don't have time. <laughs> so uh, over there in New Zealand, that, that's also the, the base for uh, the, the Fawcett project. So uh, you, you probably uh, talked to the, the folks who, who work on that, and my guess is that they'd be eager to, uh, uh, eager to advocate for, for Fawcett with you. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I, I've, I've had drunk beer with those guys on a, quite a number of occasions. Um, yeah, it, it is a small country. We do know a lot of people. So we, we may not know everyone, but yeah, we, we, we know that the community is quite small. So yeah, definitely uh, they'll be quite keen to see us uh, leveraging those uh, that technology within our environment. So uh, what what are you looking forward to in the future in this uh, um, open compute project, open networking? Uh, what do you see as uh, the, the next step? And and that could be, you know, for your own data center, that could be for the, the wider uh, environment around it, uh, what, whatever you uh, want to talk about. I guess what I'm really looking forward to seeing is a greater uptake and better accessibility to uh, smaller businesses and acceptance that this is a, a good way of doing things. Uh, the fact that you can actually go off and, find and read the specifications for the platform that you're running to answer the questions of things like, what is this jumper on the motherboard for? How can I put a customized BIOS configuration onto that machine to tailor it exactly to how I need it to be without having to go through the, the silly menus that you always get in a BIOS? The, the ease of use for deploying these things are the things that I think people are really going to realize. And... Uh, so I'm I'm active in the uh, Australian New Zealand. We've set up a regional committee for trying to encourage uptake and assist people with using OCP. I want to see that getting busier and start doing more things, and for us to get more and more people involved in the project. So it it seems like you have a, a fairly small number of these these racks deployed, maybe even just one. Um, have you have you noticed the the benefits already with the, the deployment that you have? At this stage, our scale is probably too small to be, be able to say that, yes, we've seen an improvement yet. Uh, certainly as far as just physically getting the machines ready to go onto the rack and building them, yeah, definitely, that's, that is easier. It's a lot easier to rack these things. The, the racks are much easier to work with. You're not dealing with cage nuts or anything like that because it, all the equipment just slots together. The machines themselves are just nicer to work on, both from a physical point of view and from a software point of view. I wonder what really held up the industry to this point. Um, I, I, when in your talk, you mentioned that uh, the 19-inch rack model was actually standardized by the railroads back in the, the 19th century. Do, do you think it was really just a, a matter of, uh, of inertia? I think it's a case of inertia, and also that the traditional server manufacturers, while they want to change something, while they want to go out and rock the boat and change their even their, their server chassis, to require a different type of rack when that would then limit their market that they could get into while they want to go and force their customers to change the racks uh, the the benefit that Facebook has had and why they could do this was they were doing their own data centre it was all their own kit it was, a, it was a greenfield build and they could just say right that's what we're doing we're going to put this equipment in we're going to put uh, these racks in this equipment into the racks it was their own decision, and they could do that off their own bat. And I think that's why we haven't seen the, the likes of HP, IBM, and so on 
doing this kind of thing. It's, you know, it's too risky. Uh, sure, that, that makes a lot of sense. And so uh, really what we ended up with was that the, the customers uh, sort of revolted and demanded better things from the suppliers uh, rather than uh, the, the other way around. But I think it's a bit more extreme than that. We saw the customers who had the size and the capacity revolt. Well, you, you can't as a customer expect to get something special in quantity one. Exactly, and that's the thing. But when you're dealing with a quantity let's say 100 racks, you can fit approximately 20 servers into a rack, 20,000 servers, then you're dealing with a very, very different situation. Oh, right, and, and companies like, uh, um, like Facebook buy their servers probably by the megawatt, you know. Absolutely, and, and this was just their first data center, and then they've rolled out more, more data centers from then. Uh, and we've actually seen some interesting things as well. Is not, it's not just uh, Facebook that's gotten into this. You know, Rackspace was involved in the project, and even now we're seeing Microsoft are bringing out open compute project hardware that they've designed themselves. Uh, so the Microsoft Azure cloud is actually running on OTP hardware that was designed by Microsoft, and they've contributed those designs to the foundation. So uh, one of the uh, questions that I posed to you at the, uh, the, the end of uh, the, the talk yesterday was somewhat off topic, but I want to return to it uh, anyway. So uh, we're, we're seeing that uh, the, the commercial hardware is, is getting through Open Compute Project and other things uh, more and more uh, open. And uh, I, I wonder uh, if, we'll, if we'll see that happen to consumer hardware at any point. It seems like maybe what we would need is almost the equivalent of uh, the, the, the consumers uh, rising up and saying, we, we want something that, that, that's more open. Do you, do you have any thoughts along those lines? You know, I think that's kind of, kind of a difficult one. I think that fundamentally, unfortunately, a lot of consumers don't care. I, I think they don't see that as being an issue I think that th- those of us who come from an, an open source background, we care. We want to have that flexibility and the, the ability to make changes to things. You know, think back to the TiVos where people were able to hack those when they first came out, but then TiVo turned around and started trying to re- continue to engineer things to make it harder and harder and harder because their value is on the hardware and the IP that goes into it. And if people can subvert that hardware and use it for other purposes, then they're losing some of that, that benefit and that market value that they have. Having said that, I would like that flexibility. I would like to be able to customize stuff. You know, you can now go out and you can buy home amplifier systems, which you can stream things to, and Spotify and all that kind of stuff. They're actually running Linux. But I don't know what operating system. It might be customized by or it might be Debian, for we know. But we can't get into them. We can't modify them. It's a closed box. But yet, wouldn't it be fantastic to actually be able to get in and customize your stereo to be able to do what you wanted to do and not just have to put up with whatever interface they happen to make available, let alone the question around security updates? Because suddenly you have a full-blown computer in your home stereo rack that you can't modify. I've got those because... I built some up myself from my, you know, controlling my TV using the TV, but that's stuff that I've got control over. I built that. I can keep it up to date, or I can choose not to keep it up to date because of it, maybe new kernels don't support my uh, video card, which is unfortunately the case. Uh, but I've got that isolated. It's not, it's not accessible from the internet. But who knows what the situation is with some of these devices. So 
I would like so to, to kind of recap and come back to the question mm-hmm. I would like to see consumers turn around and demand that they want to have open hardware and that flexibility I just don't know if it's going to happen anytime soon yeah I, I find the the whole thing frustrating too uh, you actually can buy uh, open consumer boxes that uh, that, that do this uh, this sort of thing the, the problem is that they have a really bad reputation because uh, people are selling them loaded with all kinds of uh, uh, software that, that facilitates for example um, uh, watching Netflix without a ha- having an account and so uh, these things have essentially been banned from all of the uh, the normally convenient online uh, marketplaces so uh, where they exist, uh, they have a terrible reputation. Uh, and your your example with TiVo was was a, a good one. Uh, Richard Stallman actually tried to in, invent a, a, a word TiVoization for what uh, TiVo did to their boxes. <laughs> Absolutely. And in fact, I, I know some of the guys that were involved in doing the initial hacks of the, of the TiVo. And uh, so, yeah, it's an un- unfortunate thing. And um, yeah, look, I've got a Cody box at home that... I, I built myself uh, along to go along with Myth TV because you know they do different things, right? Uh, but you know, in my defence, I've not put any of that other stuff on there. <laughs> oh, you, it's very useful without uh, all of that uh, stuff on it. Huh? Absolutely, my, my kids use it all the time. They, they absolutely love being able to watch watch, watch their movies. So. All right. Well, we've we've strayed pretty far uh, from my uh, original premise. Uh, so. Uh, is there anything that I, I should have asked about uh, um, open networking or open compute project? I guess the, the only thing is um, how do people get involved? That's a, a great thing. Why don't you tell us about it? <laughs> uh, so there's a website about the open compute project. Uh, there is a wiki. If you just do a Google for open compute project, you'll be able to find it. There's mailing lists. They have uh, annual summits and workshops, the engineering workshops to go through and review sta- the standards we put forward and we work out where they want to go next. There's a whole heap of different ways of getting involved. There is collections of uh, all, all of the talks from the summits are available on YouTube. So you can go and see what's happening. You can find out the new technologies. Uh, there's a Facebook group. There's LinkedIn. There's a bunch of different ways. And, and the really great thing that we're saying in C is it is getting more accessible. It is a lot easier for people to buy the hardware now. There are organizations within Australia and New Zealand that can now actually uh, distribute it and what's more is we're actually starting to see uh, older equipment appear on the second hand market so you can actually go out and buy second hand servers now for a fraction of the cost to buy a new one so if you just if your company wants to, to start getting trying this stuff out or getting involved in it and you don't mind that you might be using Xeon V2 chips you can actually go and get this stuff and it is remarkably cheap now well, that sounds uh, really great. So I, I guess we've kind of uh, reached the, the end of our, uh, of our real discussion. Uh, do you want to uh, put in any plugs for Catalyst or yourself, uh, social media, websites, etc.? Sure. So uh, I'm on Twitter. My, my handle is Puck underscore because someone has registered Puck years ago and they've never actually used it. But, uh, and I can't get it back, but you know. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's somebody who grabbed the, uh, the open vSwitch uh, Twitter handle and has never used it, and it's a little frustrating to us too. <laughs> totally. Uh, but also, the Catalyst website is uh, catalyst.net.nz. We do blog posts on there about things and news releases and a pretty good summary of the, com- of the products that we work on. Uh, people that I've been dealing with around the OCP stuff, is, is, uh, as I mentioned earlier, Silicon Systems, 
I've also been chatting to the, a bunch of other organisations within Australia. But uh, if, if you, people want to find out more about what the options are, look, just drop me a line. Find, find me. There aren't many people on the internet called Andrew Ruthven and from New Zealand. Uh, and I'm happy to try and put people in touch with, the, with local providers. All right. That sounds great. Uh, thank you very much for talking to me today. My pleasure. OBS Orbit is edited and produced by Ben Pfaff using Audacity audio editing software and released under the Creative Commons Unported 3.0 license. The intro and bumper music in this episode is excerpted from Electro Deluxe by My Free Mickey and the outro from Girls Like You by Stefan Kartenberg, both under the Creative Commons Attribution Unported 3.0 license. For more episodes of OVS Orbit, visit ovsorbit.org, or for more information about OpenVSwitch, visit openvswitch.org.